chapter number 19. We have been working our way through the book of John, and uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, this study, preparing and delivering the messages. And again, it is uh, with and by only by God's grace, and it's only uh, by His mercy that we can come here and that we can join together in our worship and to reflect upon the trial, the sufferings, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And I know it has taken us some time to work through uh, these phases of the trial, but I hope it has once again drawn our hearts to the Lord in gratitude and appreciation and thanksgiving, that it has renewed once again our appreciation, our gratitude for our salvation, and that it also has motivated us and encouraged us to share the gospel with others, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And I know that so many of us in different places are taking advantage of divine opportunities as the Lord gives us opportunities, and many times those open doors come and we have opportunity to share the truth of God's word, share the gospel, and uh, we uh, see the, the fruit of that sometimes near, and sometimes the fruit of that will be in eternity. And uh, we're thankful so much for uh, the outreach of our church in so many different ways, through our lives, through our testimonies, and through the spoken word. But we see here in John chapter 19, as we are in this second phase of the Roman trial, again, one trial of Jesus Christ, but a section of it that was Jewish in nature before Annas and Caiaphas, and sections of it that were Roman in phases of the Roman trial before Pilate, Herod Antipas, and then back again before Pilate. And we are in that second time before Pilate, in that third phase of the Roman trial. And Pilate is once again in a time of great consternation. As we came to the close of John 18 a couple of weeks ago, we saw where Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod Antipas, who was nearby in Jerusalem. Herod Antipas was the Roman governor of Galilee, up north, where Jesus was from, where Jesus had grown up, Nazareth being in the northern part of Palestine, there in the region of Galilee. And Pilate thought he could get Herod Antipas to deal with Jesus, and then he would not be the one to blame for Jesus being put to death. He was trying to escape putting to death a man who he knew was innocent. Herod Antipas mocked, humiliated Jesus, but then he sent, Pilate, excuse me, sent Jesus back to Pilate because Herod Antipas as well did not want to be guilty of putting an innocent man to death. Herod Antipas did not want to deal with Jesus and be the one who had his blood on his hands. So Herod Antipas sends Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate is once again faced with this conflict. So he tries to come up with a couple of compromises. How can he, in his mind, be able to appease the Jews and also keep good 
relations with the Romans, his overseers. He's trying to balance the two because if the Jews get too upset and they start some sort of riot or insurrection, if they get too unruly, then the Romans will be upset with Herod for, or with Pilate for not being able to control the region of Judea. And the region of Judea was particularly difficult for Roman governors because of the Jews, because of being the capital, the, the center of the capital city there, Jerusalem, and Israel, and Judea. So it was a particularly difficult area for any Roman governor. Pilate was struggling. He has this Jewish mob outside the praetorium that are asking him to execute Jesus, to put Jesus to death. He knows he's an innocent man. He's tried to send him off to Herod Antipas. Herod sends him back. So at the end of chapter 18, what does he do? He comes up with what is the tradition at the time of the Passover. He tries to compromise with them and give them Jesus and put Barabbas to death. Surely they'll take Jesus. Surely if he gives them the option of Barabbas or Jesus, surely they would want Jesus back in their midst, not Barabbas, a murderer, a robber, a criminal who no doubt would go back to his life of crime. And we talked about that attempt at compromise and the Jews said, no, we want Barabbas Jesus, we want to be crucified. So that compromise didn't work. That brought us into chapter 19 and verse number one, where Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. We spent some time a couple weeks ago looking at the scourging and the fact that this was a very brutal, torturous whipping. Leather straps with glass or metal or bone strapped to the end, hooked on to the end of those leather straps. And as that whip went down and across the body of that individual who would have their back turned and their hands tied above them, those lashes would tear into the flesh and cause great bleeding. And sometimes the one who was being whipped would not even survive the scourging. Pilate is attempting another compromise. He is still illegal and unjust in whipping an innocent man, committing a form of torture that is outlawed by the Geneva Convention in today's 21st century wars. We know what's going on overseas. We've heard the news and the war crimes that have been committed in places like Germany in World War II and the concentration camps. And we've heard of people like Saddam Hussein and I forget the name of the uh, Syrian dictator who they both use some form of chemical weapons. We know what's going on in Ukraine with Russia and the war crimes. Those are ways in which wicked, evil people commit crimes against humanity even in the midst of a war where there's supposed to be rules of warfare. The Romans didn't care. Here is Pilate whipping an innocent man, scourging him with leather straps, with bone and glass and metal, tearing Christ's flesh, tearing Jesus' flesh. 
causing him to bleed profusely, disfiguring him, hoping that surely seeing Christ suffer, the Jews would have enough and Pilate would not be forced to execute Jesus, to put him to death and have again the blood of an innocent man on his hands. So Pilate, he tries to wash his hands of the blood of Jesus. We know that that was just an outward effort to try to absolve himself of the guilt, of the responsibility of crucifying, murdering, executing an innocent man. We know that it was, of course, not effective. And it is symbolic of how so many individuals try to wash their hands of the guilt of their sin by all kinds of different means, through hedonistic pleasures, through blame shifting, through redefining the terms, all kinds of ways in which man tries to deal with his guilt but ignores and rejects the only true solution for our guilt, the blood of Jesus Christ. As we humbly repent of our sins and plead for his forgiveness, only and only then can we be released from the guilt of our souls. Pilate's symbolic acts did nothing for his guilt, for his soul. We see then in verse number 2, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. I believe it is in the Gospel of Matthew that it is referred to as a scarlet robe. Scarlet and purple is, again, probably the blending of the two colors in a robe that was probably well-worn and had been used and was somewhat faded. So again, they're supplementary, they're not contradictory, they're complementary accounts. And in the uh, morning lights, uh, either one of those colors would be a correct and accurate description of the robe. The point is that the robe was put on him to mock him. He's being mocked. They are referring to him as king of the Jews but they're not recognizing him as the true king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And so the robe is a mockery. The crown of thorns, it's, it's assumed that the thorns that were grown in that area that were as long as sometimes two inches was what made up that crown and it would have been pressed into his brow, into his scalp and caused further bloodshed. They mocked him in verse 3, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they smote him with their hands. The abuse, the injustice of this trial, it continues. Again, comparing to our justice system where we take criminals of the worst kind and we put them in nice suits and we clean them up and we give them a fair trial and we put them through at least a humane system, even if they're guilty of some of the most heinous crimes. When a school shooter can be given a life sentence instead of capital punishment, and in some cases people who have committed far less crimes get a death sentence, it goes to show, yes, there are some injustices in our 
justice system. And we are seeing that played out before our very eyes when it comes to politics and some of the headlines. And my point isn't to get into all that. Our justice system obviously has flaws, obviously has failures. It is not perfectly equal and just all the time in every way. But this is the greatest injustice ever committed against any man of all time. He is mistreated. The, the, the abuses are inhumane. Even as he is a bloody mess, as his visage is marred, as Isaiah 53 describes, they still continue to mock him and to smite him with their hands, which would be the palm of the hand coming across and whacking someone upside the, the head. A cruel, abusive way of treating a prisoner. Verse 4, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Here is Pilate again trying to absolve himself of the responsibility, trying to get out from under this responsibility of ordering the execution of an innocent man. He declares him innocent once again. Here in verse number 4, I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. Verse 6, When the chief priests, therefore and officers, saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. He repeats it again. This is an innocent man. Now in my haste to finish a couple weeks ago, I did not emphasize the fact that Pilate was literally trying to say to the Jews, led by the Sanhedrin, led by these religious leaders, a mob had formed around them, behind them. He's coming, he's, he's bringing Jesus out into the courtyard where they can see Jesus and they can see the bloody, tangled mess that he is. They can see the crown of thorns. They can see the robe. They can see his condition. And he says, I find no fault in him. Twice he declares Jesus' innocence. And the mob cries out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, okay, then you take him. The emphasis there is on Pilate saying, okay, if you want him dead so badly, then you take him. I'm giving him to you for you to deal with. You can take him as a mob and you can do what you want with him. That's essentially what he is saying. But verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. What is the point? What do they keep emphasizing? Their hatred for Jesus, for referring to himself, for calling himself the Son of God. Jesus had declared his deity on more than one occasion. Remember, they had already picked up stones on at least one other occasion to kill him, and he walked through their midst. They knew what Jesus was claiming, and everything about Christ's life backed up the fact that he was God. His words, his miracles, the character of his life, everything demonstrated that he was the very Son of God, the God-man, that he was God in human flesh. And it was the 
hatred, the sin of the human heart that was ultimately the motive for wanting Jesus to be dead. These religious leaders, they would not, they would not respond to Christ in saving faith. They would not repent of their sin. They would not see their pride. But they also did not want to take responsibility and have his blood on their hands, at least not at this point. So they are saying to Pilate, we have a law, he must die. But remember, Pilate, it is the Roman authority that must give the stamp of approval for this man to be put to death. They still wanted him to be responsible. They wanted the Romans to ultimately be responsible. The guilt of human's heart, of a, of a person's heart, of, human, of the human heart, the guilt of the human heart can still have a prick of conscience. So as I've read, and I have a little bit of an interest in true crime, it's fascinating to me, and I've told this before, I've taken a criminal justice class for a week several years ago, and in the course of that class we had to read a couple of books, and they gave us a choice, and we had to get it approved, and I read a couple of books by an FBI profiler by the name of John Douglas. And he was one who had interviewed some of these heinous serial killers. And I'm reading in this book, and I don't know anything about John Douglas other than he was a career FBI agent profiler, and he was very good, one of the best at that time, at doing what he did. And it was interesting, as I was reading through the chapter describing these individuals and their motives, and he basically described in, an, in a secular way Romans chapter number 3. I'm reading this as a student taking this criminal justice class for a certification, and it was a Christian uh, teacher, it was a, a man who was teaching us from a, a biblical perspective to be able to eventually allow us to serve as chaplains in prisons and law enforcement, and I'm reading this book, and I'm listening, I'm reading, and I'm, and I'm understanding that this man is describing the sin nature of man, and he describes these serial killers, and he says something along the lines of, no matter how evil and how wicked they were, no matter how addicted they were to their criminal activity, they knew what they were doing was wrong. It was fascinating to me as I'm reading this, and I said, this is exactly what the Bible describes about the human heart. The Sanhedrin, Pilate, Caiaphas, Annas, though they were at various degrees of knowledge of the Word of God, of truth, of exposure to Jesus, they were at various degrees, various levels, they all were responsible before a holy God. They were making choices in the Sanhedrin, the mob, the religious leaders. They knew that they had an innocent man. They knew that Jesus Christ was God, but they would not accept Him as the Messiah. And they said, Pilate, 
you take him, you crucify him. Pilate's trying to say, no, you take him, you crucify him. And we see in this trial that both Jew and Gentile are guilty before God for putting to death, for murdering our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, it's a reminder of it's our sin that put him there. It's our sin. Verse number 8. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate was a pagan. He was probably polytheistic if he was religious at all. He was probably a superstitious man. Oh, and there are so many religious people that are just superstitious. There are even good Bible-believing Christians that are superstitious and are afraid of all kinds of different things and doing certain things because they might have some negative act of fate or something that would cause them to have some harm done. Pilate was a, no doubt a very superstitious man. He'd already heard from his own wife, do nothing to this man. I have been plagued in a dream because of this man. She even says, Pilate, this man's innocent. Don't be guilty of executing him. Pilate now hears this crowd, this mob saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he turns to Jesus and he says, whence art thou? Where are you from? Is essentially what he is saying. Full of superstition, pagan philosophy and thoughts. A man who is gripped with fear. His conscience, no doubts, is afflicted. And he asks Jesus, where are you from? Commentators have debated this. It's interesting in reading and studying. Commentators have tried to interpret exactly what Pilate's motive is. Is Jesus some sort of phantom or apparition that has appeared and now he is dealing with some sort of superhuman life form that could bring some sort of curse upon him? Is that what Pilate's thinking? Is, is Pilate thinking that he is some sort of, that Jesus is some sort of mythical God, like the Greeks and the Romans would worship, like a Zeus or one of the other mythological gods? Pilate is in great fear. He is in great consternation. And when he asked Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. And there are times as we read in the book of Proverbs where we answer a fool according to his folly. But we're also told in the next verse to answer a fool according to his folly. In other words, we answer a fool as his folly deserves. This was not a time for Jesus to speak. In his omniscience, as the perfect and holy son of God, he was quiet and we know from Isaiah 53 that before his, he was like a lamb before his shearers, dumb, quiet. He opened not his mouth. Jesus only spoke when it was right and appropriate to do so. And he always spoke with the right words, with the appropriate answer. Isn't it just a shame with social media and the computer and screens 
I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was interesting with the submersible that was lost at sea and the tragedy of those five lives that went into eternity from the depths of the ocean this week, this past week. It's interesting how social media erupted and there were news articles about the absolute horrible things that were said about these people and about this kind of rich hobby that certain wealthy people can enjoy and going down into the depths of the ocean. And it was a reminder, even as I was reading this article, of how we are so guilty of acting so worldly with our tongues, with our words. We think because we're behind a screen that we have some sort of anonymity that we have absolved ourselves of any responsibility and we can just let it go. And we do it in text messages and different kinds of direct messaging services and we think because it's in digital form, it's in electronic form, because it's social media, it's posted, therefore it is okay and it is appropriate and it is right. And because I don't have any consequences for it, then who cares? I'll say what I want. But that's not what Ephesians 4 says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. And there is the answering of a fool as his folly deserves. There was nothing at this point for Jesus to say to Pilate. To do so would have been casting pearls before a swine. To take another proverb, another truth. And we have to do that as we are increasingly in a God-hating, God-forsaken world. We have to make sure that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts are pleasing to the Lord, are right before God. And we're all guilty of sinning with our mouth. We're all guilty of sinning with our tongue. It is a fire. It is a world of iniquity. It is a poison, as James 3 talks about. But we see the example of our Lord in tremendous suffering, in extreme pain, in time of great injustice. Is Christ leading a protest and an insurrection and using all forms of vulgarity and harsh, cruel language to make sure that he knows who's in charge? Is that how he responds? We continue in the passage here. And went again into the judgment hall, saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Pilate gets angry. Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Pilate is now in his fear, in his angst, in his conviction, in his superstition, in his polytheism, and all the pagan thoughts that are going through his mind. He gets angry and he says, Don't you know who I am? I could crucify you this very moment. And then we see the truth of Jesus Christ and the power with self-control, with all authority, with holiness and perfection. In verse 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee 
hath the greater sin. Here we see Jesus responding in holiness, in perfection, letting Pilate know who was truly the one with the authority, who truly had the power, and that Christ was once again, as he had told them before, he had power to lay down his life and he had power to take it up again. And he was reminding Pilate that the only authority that Pilate had came from God. And we have to remember that. Whether it be a father, a husband, whether it be a manager, a boss, whether it be a pastor, whether it be a mom, a wife, whatever the situation, we have to put ourselves once again before God and recognize who we are and what our proper role and our proper authority is before a holy God and exercise that according to God's will and according to God's word, according to God's way. And we see a lot of wicked, corrupt politicians today, don't we? And Earl reminded us in the Sunday school hour, a lot of these politicians, they think that they have the authority. They think that they can just keep making rules and policies and legislate all kinds of their wicked immorality and they're going to get away with it. And they're never going to be responsible for it. But Psalm 2 is so very clear that the Lord laughs, that God laughs. He has them in derision. That God is not mocked as we read in Galatians. Pilate Again, as we have entitled this sermon, this series within a series, it is Pilate that is being confronted. Christ is confronting Pilate. And maybe you are here this morning and you are feeling the confrontation, not from me, it's not about me, but maybe you are feeling the confrontation of the word of God, of the truth, in your own heart, in your own mind. And you have to make a choice like Pilate's, like some of these characters in this account. We could go back to Annas, who was the true authoritative high priest, though he did not have the office as the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas was the one pulling the strings. Annas was too proud. He had too much political power and influence to repent of his sin, to turn from his sin and to turn to Christ. In his mind, there's no way. He was too proud. He had too much political control, too much power. What about Caiaphas, who as the high priest, the president, the overseer of the Sanhedrin, the 71st, the chairman, in a sense, of the board, who could give the tie-breaking vote, as we talked about the Sanhedrin several weeks ago. Caiaphas, he was literally controlled by his father-in-law. He was the puppet at the end of the string, easily persuaded by the influence of the Sanhedrin and by his own father-in-law. He refused to come to Christ, to repent of his sin, to see his sin. We've talked about Herod Antipas. He was an arrogant, sensual leader who had already ordered the death of a respected Bible preacher in executing John the Baptist. 
He didn't want the guilt of another innocent man on his conscience, and he didn't see any political benefit in ordering Jesus' execution, so he sent Jesus back to Pilate. Yet he demonstrated his false view of his own authority by humiliating and mocking Jesus and having a robe placed on him. Herod Antipas did not come to Christ, did not repent of his sin, did not submit to the Lord. And again, we come to Pilate, a cowardly politician, fearful of Rome, fearful of the Jews and the Sanhedrin, fearful of the mob, an insecure man of great power. And the only way his insecurities and his fears could have been solved was was by what? By turning to Christ, seeing his sin and turning from his sin and turning to Christ. But instead, he commits the unjust crime of putting Jesus to death, the very Son of God. Pilate here is confronted in verse 11. But notice at the end of verse 11, Therefore he that hath delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. As great as Pilate's guilt was and responsibility for ordering the execution of Jesus for putting to death an innocent man, for putting to death the Messiah, the Son of God. Yet there was a greater degree of responsibility on those who had delivered Jesus unto him. Who is he referring to? It could be the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin who were knowledgeable of the Bible, who knew the Old Testament, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, whom we've talked about. It could be Caiaphas, could even be a specific reference to Judas himself who betrayed Jesus. But it's a reminder once again, and again, I don't say this with any man-made authority. I say this by the authority of the word of God, the truth of God's word. That we are responsible before God for the truth, for the light that is given to us. It is a great burden on my heart to see young people grow up in Christian homes and go to good Bible-preaching churches for people who hear the gospel, who sit under the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God regularly and throughout their growing up years, and then they get into their adult years, and somewhere along the line they deconstruct their faith. And they attack the Word of God, and they deny the truths of scripture and they reject Jesus Christ and they reject doctrines, foundational, fundamental doctrines of the word of God to go and to live their own life the way they want to, to do their own thing. In verse 11, the second half of verse 11 is a reminder again, as guilty as Pilate was, Jesus says, he who delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. There is a degree of punishment for those who reject Christ, who do so with a greater amount of light, a greater knowledge and exposure to the truth. There's a greater degree of punishment should they ultimately and finally reject Christ and go into eternity without Jesus That is a sobering reality 
That is a sobering thought. But that is not the heart of our Lord. The heart of our Lord is that all would come to Him in repentance and faith. He commands all men everywhere to repent. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God doesn't want any. He does not want any to go into eternity without Him. And we are brought to that reality once again as Jesus answers Pilate with the truth. Then that brings us to verse number 12. And we see here in this final phase of this Roman trial of Christ's second appearance before Pilate, and from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew Gabbatha, or Golgotha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. And they, but they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Here we have a man who, in verse number 12, when he is confronted with being Caesar's friend, whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Pilate is once again confronted. Who is going to be his king? Who is going to be his authority? Who is going to be his friend? This is an area that the Jews knew, the religious leaders knew they could get Pilate. They could really jab him with this. Because they knew where Pilate was at. Trying to keep the Romans happy, trying to keep the Jews happy. They knew that Pilate was a dirty, greedy politician. And most of them are. Can I just make that a little side note? Some of them aren't. Some of them aren't, but a lot of them are. And Pilate is a dirty, greedy little politician. And who is going to be his master? Who is he going to serve? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Doesn't it come down to that so much in our lives? An unsaved person is confronted regularly with his or her sin. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to remain a servant, a slave of sin? Or are you going to be a servant of God and righteousness? By turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Jesus said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He talks about his burden being light and his yoke being easy. That's not, that's not the way it's portrayed, is it, in the world today? Here's Pilate. He, he, Caesar at this time is probably Tiberius. Pilate knows that ultimately his orders to be governor is from Caesar. At the same time, he knows that he's got to keep the Jews happy. He, he, the Jews themselves, they don't want to be Caesar's friend. They hate Caesar, but they're using that as leverage 
kind of blackmailing, in a sense, Pilate. And again, it puts Pilate at that choice. Who is going to be his friend? Who is going to be his master? Now, he's torn. He's got the Jews, the mob. He's got the Romans, Caesar. But ultimately, the choice is between whether he's going to be a servant of God and of righteousness and submit and turn from his sin, or he's going to be a servant and a slave to this world and to the politics and to the power and to the murderous motive of the Jews or to the Romans and their polytheism and their pagan mythologies and their thirst for power. We have to come to that place. First of all, as an unsaved person, we have to come to that place where we turn from our sin, we repent of our sin, we turn to Christ in saving faith. But are not we as believers caught betwixt and between many times the tug and the pull of the world and the temptations and the sensuality and all the temporary Pleasures, the passing pleasures, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they're everywhere. And they're at our fingertips. They come in one gig or more. Now we're into terabyte speeds called the internet, the World Wide Web. We can get everything that the world has to offer at our very fingertips. And we just have to pull it out of, the, out of our pocket. And we have devices that we carry with us that are smarter than us sometimes. They do things that we don't even know they can do. And I'm not saying that we should all throw our smartphones into the Wabash River. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes we want to. <laughs> sometimes we feel like it. But it is an area that we are constantly having to monitor and to moderate and to discipline ourselves and there's a host of many others that's just one that's just seems seems to be so first and foremost who's going to be our master who are we going to serve we're going to serve caesar the god of this world are we going to serve the mob and the licentious pleasures that want to murder our lord and savior but parade themselves as doing justice as doing good is removing the world of all of this lack of progress, all this prudishness and all these rules. Who are we going to serve? Pilate's in a place of decision. What's he going to do? We know the rest of the story. We know, as we just read and into verse 17, where we'll pick up next week. But it reminds us once again as believers of our choice when we repent of our sin and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't stop there. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter number 3, in verse number 10, of our responsibility as believers in light of the sufferings of Christ and His dying for our sins. Philippians 3, in verse number 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The Christian life 
is a life of death. Of death to self. Of death to me and my will and everything that I think that is best for me. It's a life of submission and service. Can I say slavery to the greatest and best master who when we do his will, when we obey his commands, when we follow his lead, we live the very best life possible. And Pilate and these other leaders and the mom and so many that day were rejecting Christ, their Savior. We're thankful that some did in the midst and we'll come to those eventually and we'll talk about some of those like the centurion, the thief on the cross and others. But we're faced, aren't we, with this decision. Are we going to be willing to surrender our rights, turn to Christ in saving faith, repent of our sin? As a believer, are we going to have this heart that the Apostle Paul had that I may know him? That I am willing to live in the power of his resurrection and to be partaker, fellowship with his sufferings and be conformed unto his death that by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. May that be our heart as we go out from here this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, these accounts, all four gospel accounts, each human author writing the inspired words of God to reveal to us your truth, that we might know you as our Savior, that we might know you as our Lord, that we may partake in the fellowship of your sufferings, being made conformable unto your death, that we might even attain unto the resurrection of the dead, that we might press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, you who sent your only son to die on the cross for us, who became sin for us. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, may today be the day of salvation. Lord, we rejoice. We give you the glory already in someone who has come to you in saving faith even today. We rejoice, Lord, and we give you the glory for that. And we praise you and praise you with that individual. But Lord, there may be someone else today who needs to repent of their sins and turn to you. Lord, as a believer, maybe we are caught up in being slaves and servants to unrighteousness. And we need to turn from that wicked worldly lifestyle and, Lord, be made conformable to your death. And Lord, experience the fellowship of your sufferings and to know you in a greater way, and increase our faith and our obedience and our walk with you. Lord, do your work in our hearts as we sing this closing hymn, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll find in your hymnals, hymn number 302, if we'll stand and find in our hymnals as we stand.